With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, folks. Kalon here. Just with a little update here. Kalon S. Rugby. So the podcast you're about to listen to is the first part of a Eurocee fan view series. It was originally an article series I did in preseason where I sat down with eight provincial fans to preview the Eurocee season ahead. Now, as the season draws to a close... We decided to bring it back in podcast form to look back. Different voices, same idea. It's the start of a busy month and busy couple of weeks here as we have the URC Fanview Series, a special edition Heineken Champions Cup final preview podcast, a look back in the season at large ahead of the upcoming Rugby World Cup, which we will start previewing in the summer before its commencement in September. If you like what you see or hear, you can subscribe below. You can also follow me on my social media platforms, on Twitter, on Instagram, on YouTube, TikTok, and on Mastodon, with all the available links available in the program notes. So I hope you enjoy part one of the URC FanView podcast. Looking at Ulster. We interrupt the interview briefly for a word for our sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by M6 Motors. Located in Bandesloe in County Goa, M6 Motors brings a combination of value and innovation to their renowned car sourcing. With unbeatable quality, prices and service, backed up with a name you can trust. You can call them on 090-96-45801 or follow them on social media at M6 Motors on Facebook or Instagram or call in store today. Now back to the podcast. So hello and welcome to the first podcast edition of URC FanView, a fan-led series recapping the season gone by for each of the four Irish provinces. After a pulsating quarterfinal last Friday night, it was second seed Ulster who bowed out at the hands of interpretational rivals Connacht. Questions would now be raised about the playing personnel, coaches and playing style, amongst other things. And looking to provide all the answers tonight, our esteemed Ulster fan and Red Hand podcast host, Mr. Peter Lockhart. Welcome on board, Peter. Thanks, Kieran. Good to be here. It's good to have you on. Um... We are meant to have another lot on, but he is running late. So we just said we plow into it. And if he joins, I'll, I'll introduce them then. But first and foremost, it was, a, it was a disappointing end to the season for Ulster as they fell flat on their face in the knockout stages. 
Now, I, I did this as a preseason pod, and there has been an explainer gone up. Um, and in the preseason, it was labeled as a big year. And we're almost reaching a final was was held as a minimum, not least the aiming point. Um, as it transpires, obviously, round of 16 elimination in Europe and mass state in the league. So, Peter, would you have held a similar belief coming into the season that it was about making a final um, and, and trying to win something? And if so, does it make the, the campaign just gone all the more heartbreaking? Yeah, it's a difficult season to sum up. And of course, we had these conversations. And I remember uh, starting the season on my own podcast with a group of fellow Ulster fans. And we were full of hope and optimism. And uh, I go into every season like that. I think it's, uh, I'm sure every every fan's the same. You think this season will be different. Uh, there's um, a number of new guys uh, uh, coming, coming into the, the squad. And you start always with some degree of hope and optimism. Um, I, I think uh, whenever you, you watch the preseason friendlies, we had a couple against, I think it was Exeter we played against. Yeah. And it was lovely, lovely sunny days and we're playing some pretty nice rugby, throwing the ball around. Um, I, I think the, um, the hope that I had built up, and I'll come to that in a second, the degree of hope that I built up, the prospect, of the home knockouts towards the end of the season uh, was tantalising a home semi-final. I honestly thought we had a really good chance of of making it to the final, as I think realistically did most Ulster fans as well. Um, Going back to the start of the season, though, looking at the squad depth, that looked pretty good. There's a bit of competition for places, exciting uh, sort of unknown signings, the likes of Jake Flannery. I know you're chairman of the Jake Flannery fan club. I want to see more of him at Ulster. It's an appreciation society, actually. <laughs> appreciation society. I'd like to join that because uh, I think he's a very good player and certainly started off really well, hit a lovely cross kick uh, in, in one of the pre-season friendlies. And to be honest, we didn't see much of him after that, uh, which was disappointing. We had Jeff Tamaga Allen join us as well. I had other guys who didn't know much about, but again, we're just uh, just optimistic at the prospect of the likes of Michael McDonald coming in. These guys, um, the likes of McDonald was picked for the Emerging Ireland uh, tour in the summer. Um, it looked really good in that as well. We didn't see much of him. But anyway, the, the, the sense I'm trying to give you is that sense of hope and optimism um, uh, as we uh, as we started into the season now look it wasn't a, a complete write-off there there was um a second place finish um there was the fact we had nine points more than last season we'll talk about the uh the rough patch in the middle of the season but we battled back now something that i've talked about um with with friends and other other fans is that last game against connaught in some ways, I was shocked. In others, in other ways, I wasn't particularly shocked. I think it was more more of a sense of disappointment uh, and just sort of get, trying to gauge my complex emotions following that defeat. But the um, the fact is, Ulster have never really come close to hitting fifth gear this season, even fourth gear, to be honest. We've sort of uh, looked at times, something approaching uh, the Ulster that we know and love and, and would recognise from some of their rugby. And there's glimpses of it, but we've just never clicked. Uh, the back line in particular hasn't clicked and the platform the forwards have given them ha- hasn't hasn't been good all season. 
again, a lot of flack directed towards the scrum half, uh, uh, either Duke or Cooney. At the end of the day, it's very difficult for those guys to um, to get into fifth gear themselves without a, a dominant pack, which we have lacked this season. Anyway, the, to, to answer your, your, your question, it made it very heartbreaking because I go into these things with hope and I'm a big Ulster fan and optimism and uh it was it was tantalizing prospect of that route to the final at home in front of a pack kingspan it didn't happen so yeah it was heartbreaking yeah and understandably so because we've we've all we've all been there and usually the way i do these um is go in chronological order and like you talked about ulsters malaise at the middle of the season well in fact it was they started like a steam train they won six their first seven before the the infamous game in the rds in early december and like to start in that faction, you bet Connacht at home, who ultimately knocked you out. You beat Munster in Thoma Park and went on to win in Ravenhill during that that slump. Um, where you only it was only three from ten, if if I'm right. Now it can kind of be hard because I know there's rescheduled and different things like that. But in some ways, does that kind of go from unbelievable start to mm. a complete slump? Don't don't get me wrong. Some of it was mitigated. Does that, in some ways, almost um, epitomize the season as a whole? Just moving aside from what aims and targets of of the last question, does it just epitomize everything? Do you know? Yeah, I think it does. I, I think uh, it, it epitomizes most seasons for Ulster actually, and it's uh, we tend to have no no difficulty dispatching. Um, the vast majority of the the URC at, at particularly at home, um, where we're very strong. Generally speaking, it 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 has been up until the last weekend. Uh, it has been a bit of a fortress, and we've been pretty good at home generally. It's a tough place to come. It's usually, um, it wasn't a packed packed um Kingspan on Friday night, but usually it's a pretty intimidating environment. There's a big home advantage at Kingspan. And usually uh, seasons do follow that pattern where we'll win uh, most games against either worse teams than us or teams that are maybe rotating players, uh, knowing that they're unlikely to get much uh, against against us. The the win against uh, Munster uh, at Toman Park, a particular highlight, Connaught, that, that that win, um, you'd expect to beat Connaught, and indeed we all as fans, we did admit it, but we all pretty much expected to win that quarter final. I think deep down there's maybe a sense of complacency, but yeah, I think it does. I think it epitomizes the season uh, a, a as a mixed bag. I, I I don't want to be unduly negative because the. The nine extra points this season, the fact we finished second in the league, those those are not to be sniffed at in particular because we had such a rotten um, rotten patch in the middle of the season. And and look, in fairness, they battled back. But look, another mixed bag uh, with a very disappointing end. I think I was down the dumps uh, for a few days there, and the dust has settled now, and I can look at it more clearly. Um, and look, I think it's it's not the the complete failure of a season that that some people would have you believe. And that that right there is why you don't record post match podcasts because it can be a horrible feeling at the, especially when the season ends. Mm-hmm. in that manner and then with that kind of um the, the poor run you're alluding to a question started to be asked about Ulster's attack 
in some games their defense the the Benetton game away is mm. again that stands out in terms of their defense and then the coaching or tactical frailties that may be obviously touched upon in your own podcast mm-hmm. a, a couple of of neutral guests in particular have kind of lamented that point uh, might be yours truly but anyways um and i know you're one of the ones as well who, who pointed that finger do you think ulster regressed this season in just in attack because obviously you, you mentioned nine points better off finishing second this time in in yeah. that scope they haven't but in terms of attack because i think they did they, they sort their defense out eventually yeah look i think it's a, it's a specific enough question you mentioned the defense the coaching and tactical frailties. I'm actually pretty easy on Ulster. I, I have I have issues more widely with Ulster the way it's run. I think Dan's a good coach. I think he's may, maybe um, uh, come to an end of a coaching cycle. But that's all. That's all a wee bit separate. Look in terms of uh, in terms of the attack, uh, we look narrow we look predictable there were some interesting stats uh if you follow up to johnny on twitter he had some interesting stats about the channels that we we, we uh, in, in terms of if you compare it to the rest of the urc uh ulster one of the the narrowest teams off nine it tends to be we play as everyone sort of says we play off nine there's a lot of box kicking going on um which i'm not a huge fan of box kicking from the perspective that I, I don't enjoy watching. I don't think it's a particularly uh, exciting brand of rugby to box kick and then hope to hope to win the ball back. Um, look, in terms of um, the the narrowness, we, we are a very narrow team, unfortunately. The predictability, the one-up runners, uh, the, the reliance on Stuart McCloskey, who, who's a great player, but the reliance on him to truck it up and, uh, and get an offload away we still reverted to that um, a lot. The most obvious and important thing um, to uh, to point out is the, um, the the one potent attacking weapon we had, which is the mall. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a great mall, a really powerful and dominant mall, which has saved us on so many occasions. But um, as someone else saw on the, the Red Hand podcast pointed out, when Tom Sturt's your top scorer, um, that's it's very good for him, but also it maybe suggests you're not playing a particularly expansive game, um, which is of some concern as well. You look at the relative lack of tries of our wingers, albeit uh, they've been uh, ver- you know variously injured or unavailable um, uh, away with Ireland in the case of Stockdale. So, um, but we haven't seen enough from Balakun, uh, Stockdale, Lowry. Uh, our outside backs, James Hume, uh, started the the season really well, um, and he's really tailed off. Unfortunately, uh, Stuart McCloskey did a very good job with with Ireland, I thought. Um, but uh, uh, in terms of our backs, they just haven't really clicked. They do they do look predictable, um, and there's a very interesting article Andrew Trimble basically points to that as the the key thing they're going to have to change it's something uh, again on on the Red Hand podcast we all sound like uh, broken records saying we need to facilitate um, Balakun coming into the game we saw on Saturday when he did get the ball he did very well he, he gained yards Stockdale barely touched the ball but when he did he did pretty well Um and again, Lowry just maybe not um, not not playing his best rugby at the minute. Some of the, part of the issue with those guys uh, and with Lowry as well is 
they're maybe not great out of hand kickers. Lowry in particular, Balakun not a not a kicker. Uh, Stockdale's a massive boot, but it's not always the most accurate boot. But he has the capacity to do it. Um, but look, in terms of attack, you have to look at the the, the coaching there. You have to look at. Um, Who's responsible for that? You've got Dan Super there. We are massively missing, um, as has been pointed out many times, both Jared Payne and Dwayne Peel, uh, who by all accounts were great coaches and they've really suffered as a result of not having them around. No, and that's that's understandable when you lose someone. Like I, I was a big fan of Jared Payne at, in his time at Ulster as a player and as a coach. and It's understandable, but then the questions when you have a season like this one off the back of last year, they're going to come up regardless of whether those lads were there or not. And in particular, I think in some ways Europe was both the one thing you could point to if you're really negative on Ulster. It's also the one thing you could point to as, well, shit happens sometimes. Do you know what I mean? And like, obviously, Ulster aren't afraid of the European stage. Um, They were unfortunate last year. Toulouse to Toulouse and then this year and in 2019 they lost to Ulster and I think they lost to Toulouse as well in 2020 if I'm correct um, so as a as an entire campaign because this is URC fan view just want to only skim on Europe um, conveniently I <laughs> do you think Ulster kind of took their eye off the ball a small bit or is it just it's mitigated it happens and you know when you play La Rochelle in the circumstances and you play Leinster in the circumstances you can't expect much else. Yeah, I mean, look in terms of the the and the seal game as well, the flights. So, so look, I, I think you're right. With the benefit of hindsight, it has been a mixed bag, even in Europe. So, to be honest, um, the way that it's structured, the way that the the uh, European competition is structured, the fact we got through to the round of sixteen <laughs> doesn't really make sense. It's uh, a cop out, really, like. You know. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, it felt a bit like, I mean, great, so we get to go down to Dublin for the round of 16, but also we haven't really achieved anything to get here, albeit at home win against Sale. But the, the, um, the two things, just briefly, I don't want to touch on these because I... Um, it's not the player's fault, is, is what I'd say. And the, the, the whole thing to do with the flights over to sail, the, the guys basically hadn't slept. They went over and they they had an absolute stinker, one of the worst games of the season, but they hadn't slept. They went home, flight was cancelled. They arrived like not that long before kickoff, probably didn't get a warm-up in, were knackered. You can imagine the effect that would have on a team, right? So we'll write that off, albeit there may have been various organisational things you could have done to mitigate the risk of that happening, whatever, okay? And then the pitch gate thing, the um, La Rochelle, again, like, I have my opinions on that. If it, I'll point you towards um, a very illuminating article by Brendan Fanning, uh, where he he outlines the uh, and Jerry Thornley, in fact, um, as well has a very interesting article, which really from a a neutral perspective sets out the facts as they happened. That was it was a balls up for, from Ulster, and and um, it it had a big effect on our season because um, those things precipitated um, or, or were representative of just our poor run of form. The, 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 they didn't help in, in that really difficult period. 
the, the loss to Lentz, and so that's all I'll say about that. That was a bit of a balls up. Not really the player's fault. Um, I have issues organisationally with how that was dealt with uh, and the reaction to it. But in terms of the loss to Leinster in the round of 16, uh, that was a reminder for, for uh, us in Ulster and, and in Irish rugby that there's a gulf in quality there. There's absolutely no shame in losing to them. No one blames the team for losing to Leinster. And they've the fact that what they've gone on to achieve in terms of other results, you're like, that's actually not that bad. We didn't play terribly. We didn't play very well either. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it wasn't in that sense, it wasn't really taking the, the, their eye off the ball. It was more of a a, yeah. a, a build-up. The, the rest of the stuff was a, was a perfect storm of issue, issues with fights and all. Mm-hmm. But the Leinster game was just like, do you know, what can you do? It's Leinster. Just beaten by the better team, per se. 100%. And they, they targeted Mike Lowry, who struggled. It was, it was difficult conditions. It was lashing, rain. Um, like, there's, there's no shame in losing to them. Yeah, no, that that's that's that is so true. Like Leinster are at last ahead, and by the time this goes out, they'll be preparing. Well, regardless, they'll be preparing for URC semi final and URC for, and Pine Cup final, and you wouldn't bet against them for doing the double. So obviously, it's it's not a big thing. But for Ulster, they have to be thinking like this week in particular. I don't know how it works for teams when. When the season ends, what do they do the week after? Do they go straight back in, or how does it work? But they have to be thinking to themselves, like, God, we could have been in a final, and say Munster go up to the Viva this weekend and win, and I'll be there. And if they do, you will not hear the end of it for <laughs> months on end. <laughs> but if they do, Ulster are thinking, God, we've just squandered a chance at a home final, yeah. and like they were on a great run. Like the only game that they lost since the start of the Six Nations was to Glasgow um, over there. That helped them leak Fraud Stormers into second place. You thought they turned the ship, they turned the tide. They were going to that first final in in three seasons, I believe. Mm. I think it was 2020. And then they they met their match. They were outclassed. They were all fault. Mm. If you want to hear the exact same sentiment being said, it's it's on your own podcast, which which we recorded today. And It's a very disappointing way to bow out at home, especially at home, because, you know, you look at, you know, how often do Leinster or Munster lose home knockout games? It's it's not very often. So does it feel like this is opportunity gone, a begging, where you could have had a home final or worst case, a trip to Dublin? Or does it just feel like, (laughs) really, is it just a case of we've just squandered an absolutely massive opportunity? It was a massive opportunity. Um, you, you would you would wonder whether had we got through um, to the semis, do you know whether we would have progressed? And indeed, whether we got to the final. Um, I, I don't think there was any risk of us winning against the likely, you know, against Leinster <laughs> in, in the final. But just based on what we've seen, I don't think it happened over the course of eighty minutes. It would have been very exciting. I would especially have the week after they play La Rochelle as well. Exactly. I mean, you've got a good shot at Leinster then, and if you're ever going to beat them, it's probably then. They've maybe taken their, maybe they don't really take their eye off the ball, but if there's ever an opportunity, and to put this in in context, uh, and sort of if we zoom out, Ulster haven't won silverware in, I think it's 17 years now. Um, Mm -hmm. So, there's definitely an appetite to win something, to have a trophy of any kind. Now, to us, 
I don't, I'm not representative, I don't speak for Ulster fans, but for me, rather, I think getting to the final would have made this season a success. I would have been very happy and said, look, we're, maybe didn't look pretty at times, we didn't play great rugby all of the time, but we got to a final, that's what matters, results are what matters. Uh, that game against Connacht, um, they, we just look, we didn't look well coached. They were chopping us down. They were getting over the ball quickly. We were struggling. Uh, we were getting blown away at the breakdown. It looked, honestly looked like um, men against boys at times. They just were so aggressive and abrasive and powerful at the breakdown. And it's, uh, also have the capacity to fight fire with fire in that respect. We just didn't do it. And we maybe took us by surprise. Maybe it was the fact that it's Connor at home. We'd expect to beat them. We beat them earlier in the season. And we did We did just take our, our foot off the pedal. So look, to, to answer your question in a very long-winded way, it, it def- definitely does feel like a squandered opportunity to reach the final. Um, I think we remarkably battled back, got that second place, leapfrogged Stormers uh, uh, and put ourselves in the best possible situation. The effect that has on us, uh, both in t- you, you've seen the reaction of the fans, the effect that has on us financially, you get um, you get a decent payday. The more you progress in these tournaments, and something that isn't talked about that much, but you, I mean, you'll get a payout for progressing for mm-hmm. gate, gate receipts and everything will make yep. a huge impact, especially when clubs, including Ulster, are strapped for cash. In terms of motivation, looking ahead the next season, uh, fans and t- season ticket sales to, to crash out in such a spectacular way will have an effect on all of that. And so not only did we squander that opportunity, it, it does the implications of that uh, go, go beyond a, a, a sort of a few days of feeling grumpy. <laughs> uh, it is... It's all a complete unmitigated disaster. It's sport. It's a game, but also uh, you just you just would have loved to see them reach a final. Yeah, and that's like I know you've mentioned on your own podcast, and I say it an awful lot. Rugby is not soccer. You know, soccer has five opportunities to win a trophy in a year if you include preseason. Rugby has two, and even at that, you you can't just focus on one or the other. Like it's just not. It's, it's too attritional, whatever else. And like that's where I think getting to a final can be a success. I think for Munster, this weekend as we record, they're in a URC semi-final. I think that's a success, considering yeah. how the season started. Mm-hmm. I think for Ulster, even if they got back to a URC semi-final, you could make a case that it's not you know, an issue. But now it feels like a step backwards. Obviously, like we want to cook the coaching question in a minute. But when you compare to last season, they were a kick of a ball away from beating the Stormers in Cape Town mm-hmm. um, in a cracking, a cracking game of rugby. I missed it myself, but it was a crack. You know, I watched it back. It was a cracking game. And like to go from that to losing to Connacht, and it's it's different when it's an Interpro as well, and it's different when it's at home. Like I looked into it there recently. I think Munster that was their first away league win in knockout rugby but they haven't really lost at home whereas now Ulster have just gone and they've done what like they never think and like they've lost to Munster at home lost to Leinster at home lost to Ulster at home and when we talk bigger picture just I know it's kind of going off script here do you think there is an issue bigger picture I'm not saying connection with the fans I'm not saying Ravenhill is not a fortress it's a tough place to go Mm. 
but do you think there is questions to be made both in terms of the style of rugby the not the approachability but you know the the connection with with players and with coaches um with just the home form and like is there from someone who doesn't really know is there a bigger issue from fans yeah. looking at the team possibly yeah look i think um i've been a season ticket holder and a perennial season ticket holder since I was a young child and I've been to basically every home game. I think like their teams go in cycles. So I'm not going to get carried away and say, oh, it's the end of end of Ulster rugby or anything like that. I think um look like, talking bigger picture, the 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 environment and the atmosphere, I think there has been a shift, uh, uh, uh probably a negative shift more recently that is um something we're not used to in recent years because when Dan came in, you'll, you'll remember this, uh, there was a a really positive environment. The atmosphere had changed. I was always talking about, look, there's a real buzz around Ulster Rugby. He had mantras that people, he had the media repeating the mantras. He had the players talking about fighting for every inch. Um, never Brian O'Driscoll didn't repeat them, granted, you know, famously <laughs> saying that they're a basket case, but I, I accept your point. It was, it was there. <laughs> yeah, so but that that was around the time like Ulster rugby and every team goes through cycles, and um, it's it's more fans who come to rugby maybe later on, maybe haven't witnessed these cycles, and and that's completely fair. And you might you might be mistaken for, or if a fan might be mistaken for thinking, oh, it's the end of end of end of the world, Ulster rugby, or they're in the shambles. That happened then through twenty seventeen, twenty eighteen. It's a very difficult time for many reasons for Ulster rugby. Uh, Dan McFarland came in um, and, and, as I say, transformed the place and did a great job. I think he's an excellent appointment. Uh, by all accounts, an excellent technical coach, a really good forwards coach, former prop himself. Um, exactly what we needed at that time. We'd been through absolute nonsense. Uh, John O'Gibbs and, and Les Kiss and uh, people who didn't really want to be there. Um and it was good to have a guy who was respected and admired by other coaches and players seemed to respect as well. Now, in terms of uh, what's happened, I think I talk about coaching cycles. Um, it's sometimes it's hard whenever you've been you've been repeating these mantras, you have a very particular way of playing and maybe it doesn't work out for you. It's very difficult then to reinvent yourself or your coaching style because the players have heard it all before. And sometimes that's just the natural end to a coaching cycle. Is it, is uh, it kind of data? I'm not going to say is it data because he could go and be a good coach somewhere else if he does go or he could turn things around elsewhere. Do you think it is just time dating at a small bit at the moment? Yeah, do you mean like his his or his tactics and his approach, or they 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 have they have become out of date in modern rugby? Is that not, not even just tactics? Because I've I could say that an awful lot, but just kind of oh, it, his yeah. it, almost his presence. You know, he's been there yes. five years. It is a, it is a long time. Yeah, for a coach who was brought in originally when things were down. Yeah. Yeah, and look, I think he's exactly what we needed. But on that point, and his uh, his style, even of of coaching, like I've never I've never been coached by Danny Farland, but from what you hear, and there's sort of chat goes around. He sort of he he micromanages. There's different ways of of coaching, and I think that is. I don't think he's always done that, but I think increasingly, from what people have said, is that he. 
he does sort of run the show. And that is good. He's director of rugby, per se. Yeah, yeah. And that, that, that can be good and bad. But if you, if you have all of that responsibility, all of that weight on your shoulders, and something got, doesn't go well, well, then you have to bear the responsibility for that as well. In terms of his approach, I always think, I always use these football comparisons. I think the way, and it's most obvious in football is why I bring it up, I think the way that coaches interact with players has changed. I think it's a generational thing as well. I think you have to manage personalities. Uh, You have to, sometimes you even have to rotate the squads um, uh, in, in a way that you maybe wouldn't choose to, but you need to keep guys on side. You need to keep the dressing room on side. Obviously pick your strongest team, but sometimes doing that involves creating a good atmosphere as well and, and making sure guys feel like they're competing. Whereas there's some guys just didn't play for months and we've no idea where they went. And of course that breeds discontent. The likes of Marcus Ray, um, Rob Little didn't get much of a chance uh, and speaking of Marcus Ray, he was brilliant for like a year, and then we just we we didn't see him for months on end with no no explanation. Uh, Madigan would be similar. Uh, uh, Ethan McElroy more recently as well. He's who's missing. Uh, just people randomly left out for big, big periods. And I, look, I think uh, Dan has a particular style. He seems like a reasonably uh, again. Who knows? There's a, there's a media personality, and then the real him. I think he seems pretty pretty personable but I think sometimes you do have to um you do have to be a good man manager whereas I think Dan's probably an excellent technical coach but whenever you become and he hadn't had he hadn't had any experience of being a head coach and um, before and it came in did a good job but maybe those the man management skills maybe have just crept in uh, or the, the lack thereof that's crept in and, and affected the atmosphere. But that's, that's all I can say. And then, yeah, again, like we touched on this in the other pod, but the rumours that, that go around from Ferris and whoever else, and he'll he'll be fairly well informed, I would say, about what's going on. Uh, it probably doesn't take a, ro- a rocket scientist to work out, out that there's probably something, maybe some discontent or some, as as often there is, but yeah. uh, so it's nothing, it's nothing mad, but it's just that there's sometimes discontent breeds in um, in squads, and look, that may resolve itself. But it's very difficult if you lose a, a dressing room. I'm not saying that necessarily happened, but if that were the case, um, th- th- it's very difficult to get it back. Yeah, well, we could take the hypothetical here where he hasn't because we are speaking three, four days after they get they bow out of the competition and it's still very early doors. Mm-hmm. And the next question was going to be about coaching anyway. You know, the losses of Jared Payne and Dwayne Peel, which we spoke about. I, now, originally my question was, do you think it's time to restart and go again? Or, you know, with the young squad or whatever, or do you back them all, the whole ticket to stay and to grow? But I might just add a, a third option there. Based on what you've said, do you think maybe a change in direction at the top, and I'm not saying Petrie or McFarland, but going and bringing in a director of rugby to manage alongside, I'm not saying that this is, overriding Dan McFarland or Anthem, but Munster did it before, you know, they've even now recently brought in Ian Costello to kind of sort stuff beneath the professional game because that's where they felt they needed to do it. Mm-hmm. Leinster have had Leo Cullen as essentially the best DOR in world rugby, despite having the title of head coach. Do you think maybe that's where they could go or is it restart, go again, or just back as it is? 
Yeah, look, in terms of the overall question about the coaching ticket, I, I think, um, again, I, I've been unfairly uh, labelled as, as anti-Dan, not at all. Like, uh, uh, in terms of Dan McFarland, I think they're legitimate questions uh, about whether he can stay on. In terms of the staff underneath him, like, Raleigh Grant has done an excellent job. Um, uh, Dan Super, again, was whenever he, he came in, he was skills coach and uh, he was very popular with the team. I don't know, do you know what, what his stance is within the team or what his standing is within the squad, rather? Um, uh, Dan actually, Dan Super, he was, um, I remember I remember him from actually, he was a, he, he was a teacher at the school I was at. And he always struck me as a, a, a nice enough guy and uh, a good coach. He went on to coach in, in here, the big rugby school um, in Belfast. And look, Dan Super's, um, Dan Super's there waiting in the wings. I think he could be a, a go-to option. Um, the, the obvious, uh, you, you pointed out, like, Jared Payne, Dwayne Peel, huge losses. Johnny Bell was brought in to be our defence coach. Um defense hasn't been great now, I'm not pinning that all on him defensive systems take a while to bed in we've seen that in various yeah. contexts where, where new coaches come in and the systems just take, take a wee while that's okay mm-hmm. uh, and, and we can't judge them just yet but the, the defense hasn't been good and questions must be asked in that regard in, in terms of the director of rugby thing I probably need to give it more thought but in terms of uh, the personalities involved uh, that's a really difficult you need to be uh, you need to be very careful who you choose because the power dynamic is interesting. And we've had a, a ver- version of that uh, when Ulster were going through that very difficult patch. Les Kiss came in and he had sort of an ambiguous role. Uh, Neil Duke was there coaching uh, the first team. And Les Kiss was uh, parachuted in by RFU and uh, asked to do a sort of as I say quite ambiguous role which ended up I, th- I think with a bit of tension who's the coach who's in charge here you need to have I think in any of these situations you need very defined roles and yeah you can collaborate absolutely but if something goes wrong um you you need someone to be responsible um as well there there are KPIs and businesses and equally in sport you have to have some level of accountability um I think one one area which often gets overlooked is our uh, head of uh, recruitment and and I think director of operations is his role is Bryn Cunningham and look recruitment hasn't been good Ulster and and it's really cost us whenever you bring players in they need to be um, if you bring in NIQ players they need to be world beaters now in fairness um, Vermeulen was a great signing. I think it's uh, if you're losing Kutsia, you need someone who's world class. Vermeulen was a good signing. People will argue was he a success? Wasn't he? Um, I I would argue he was a good guy to bring in. Best best of uh, best possible option in the circumstances probably not like for like for Kutsia, but um, worth uh, worth bringing in for his experience and his winning ability. Um, in terms of the other signings, I listed off uh, a load of guys at the start of the season who uh, I was sort of excited by just to see how they turned out, and we didn't see any of them, um, which which says a lot. So look, I think that's another area that also need to look at, maybe just refreshing things, uh, getting getting someone in who uh, specialises in recruitment. Um, David Humphreys, it has to be said, did a great job uh, whenever he was here. Um 
and I'm personally I'm a huge David Humphreys fan. He's now actually working for a, it's like a, a, he's a head of a cricket body basically. So uh, he's unlikely to come back. But look, I think that I think yeah, I think naturally enough, there's probably um, that there's legitimate calls for a refresh um, in in the coaching ticket. And it is the reason I say that is there's such a talented young squad that I would think it would be such a shame if we didn't get the best from them. And I think they're probably not playing at their potential at the moment. Yeah, and that's... Listen, it's not... We're not trying to sound grim and say that it's it's all horrible. It's not. But you have to ask these questions when something goes off off the game and off the targets, you know, and that's, I think, it's a fairly reasonable look through. And I think one of the big things that... One of the big questions that gets asked about Ulster, which is not the coaches, not the players, is the Ravenhill pitch because everyone has been saying it for years and years. So with the, I'm being facetious, if people don't don't recognise it, but after the Larachelle game being refixed due to Frost, um, it now looks like the pitch gate is going to rear its ugly head again and Ulster wants, we believe, to lay a new 3G surface at Kingspan Ravenhill. I know the answer to this, and a lot of people listening who listen who follow you on Twitter know the answer to this. But are you in favor of a new pitch at Ravenhill? And is it worthwhile? Yeah. So I, I do have an opinion on this. Uh, and um I again I, I wouldn't be sure whether this was a direct result of La Rochelle. Again, it may have catalyzed or 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 precipitated uh the sort of planning and, and everything that had to go ahead. I think Ulster were intent on getting a 3G surface. It's it part of this commercialization of, of Ulster rugby, uh, making it a multi, multi-use and multi-sport or a venue for concerts, maybe even uh, having this plastic pitch. Uh, in some ways, it may make, it might bring in an extra revenue stream, but at what cost is what I would say. Uh, look, I think the... Science uh, is is not clear. I think that's fair to say because uh, I've looked at, I've looked into this uh, and in my own sort of meager efforts to research the safety of pitches, the resounding answer is the jury is still out on whether they're safe, whether they lead. Basically, one study that I saw points to there being not necessarily more injuries but the injuries that are sustained are more serious their ankle and the injuries potential potential career enders and the other reason i'm against it and i sort of had my own uh, as someone who's (laughs) who's spread my ankle seven times on 3g pitches i appreciate that the surface may be better um now with technology and science as it moves on it may be more springy or whatever but I put this question out to people on Twitter, on Instagram, and asked as many rugby players at every level to respond. And I did have responses. There's about 50 people at all levels of the game, right from amateur, sort of club level, right up to um, professional level, who responded resoundingly. Now, again, this is not a scientific method because the people most likely to respond are the ones who hate those pitches. <laughs> but uh, resoundingly, people came back and said, uh, we we don't like the pitches. We think there's a, a huge risk of injury. And indeed, uh, one recently retired player came to me and said, or messaged me to say, 
that he believes playing on these pitches had hastened the end of his career. They're the worst thing that has happened to rugby. Now, that is not the uh, universal view. Some people yeah. like them. They they think it creates more attractive, fast-paced rugby, more attacking rugby, more predictable bounce of the ball. Uh, we don't have things happening like the La Rochelle thing uh, as often. And so I'm sure there are benefits, but I think the best people, the best argument people can say to me is that the jury is still out. Well, if the jury is still out, then to me, it's reckless, irresponsible, maybe even to allow players to play on that until it's the, the science is settled on this. Yeah, and that's that's fair. It is, like, listen, two Irish problems is have an artificial surface, if you include Musgrave Park, which Munster play on three times a year. And I don't think there's any real complaints, but I think you, you can look, if you want to go down the commercial aspect, which is something that people don't like to talk about, but the commercial side is important in a sport which is losing money, especially across the pond. Um, it is an important revenue stream if you can get other things in there. And Musgrave Park is hosting, I think, eight concerts this summer, for instance. The sports ground, maybe that's not what they're going with it, but I know for for the sports, for Musgrave Park, that was one of the things that they were looking at. And if that is what Ulster wants, then that's fair enough. But you do have to weigh up both sides because at the end of the day it is Ulster rugby first it is not the Ulster branch um, and listen it's one of those things no more than coaching tactical whatever you could talk about it for hours on end um, just to to finish up with the URC season set to wrap up and I'm I, doing this just solely to put the spotlight on you where do you see it going who do you think is going to be the second URC champions and Bear in mind, the answer will be taken into account. <laughs> um, look, I think um, Munster, Leinster will be a, a a big game. Munster have quite a lot of injuries, in fairness, uh, and look, I'll use that to justify my response uh, and say, look, I think I think Leinster, I think Leinster, are just too powerful. I think um, they. They've only lost one game all season, and it was, honestly, what's the game? It was maybe their fourth or fifth choice, <laughs> if we're being generous. Uh, and, uh, I, yeah, I, I just, I think Leinster, um, yeah. uh, I find it difficult to look past them. Uh, yeah, sorry, I know fair. I'm speaking to the, the wrong person saying that. No, but uh, <laughs> I, um, I have my ticket for Saturday, but I do agree. I do think Leinster will, will win, and I think they'll win the URC. I think there's, uh, there is... Not going to call it a siege mentality, but I think they're going to bounce and they're going to try and, and do it. And listen, if we get more all Irish URC semi finals in years to come, let it happen because Irish rugby is in a great place at the moment. Club rugby, provincial game is at a great place. But that, unfortunately, is all we have time for this evening. My thanks again to Peter for coming on. And despite the answer, we will chat more next season with the World Cup and the URC in mind. And thanks at home through everyone for listening. So part two of URC fan view will go live next week, looking back on the season of another province, depending on who gets booted home in the semi-final stage. And there will also be a special edition Heineken Champions Cup preview, Champions Cup final preview podcast coming your way next Thursday as the final returns to Dublin after a 10-year hiatus. 
So if you want, if you like what you see or what you hear, get subscribing and you can find all the links for my platforms below. But for now, take it easy. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.